Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 12, The Patronus. Harry knew that Hermione had meant well, but that didn't stop him from being angry with her. He had been the owner of the best room in the world for a few short hours, and now, because of her interference, he didn't know whether he would ever see it again. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, just earlier today, I recorded a Patreon perk that was an extended blessing for our beautiful Hermione Granger. I would love to hear that. How can I hear about this beautiful blessing to Hermione Granger? At patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. I talk about how important it is for us to know our local neighborhoods. And I think I really go on an important riff about that. So you can listen to that on our Patreon. And of course, if you are not a subscriber to our Patreon, we are so glad that you're here. Vanessa, you were telling us a story about inspiration this week. Did you feel inspired? (laughs) I did. So Matt, you and I have both wanted to write fiction for a long time. And we've been talking about this for a very long time. And so last Halloween, we got together to talk about this. And we agreed that we would each write a novel by October 31st of this year. Halloween this year, we have to turn in novels to each other. And for November and December, I didn't do any writing. And then something happened in January where I was so inspired to write. So inspired, in fact, that I wrote a whole draft of the novel in three weeks. I bought a book on how to write a novel. I had Ariana come over to make sure that my novel is well plotted. Ariana and I improved a scene (laughs) so that I could figure out what was essential about the dialogue for a scene. Like I was so in it. And now my writing process is that most of my good writing happens in my second draft, right? Right. Getting out a bad first draft is like 
torture for me. But turning the bad first draft into the good second draft, that's where, like, the fun writing part is for me. But I am no longer inspired. I just don't have that whatever, like, muse from the outside that possesses me from the inside and makes me want to just, instead of watching TV at night, say, no, I need to spend the next three hours writing. And it is May. So that is February, March, April, where I just cannot get myself to write anymore. And I was thinking about this and like inspiration is not the only good reason to do things. And I just think that if I wait to be inspired again, I might not have a book for you on October 31st. And so that is the question that I'm bringing today is what role do we want inspiration to play in our lives, right? If we only went to work on the days we were inspired to go to work, I things would not get done. If I only showered when I was inspired to shower and not when I was stinky, right? Like the world would not like me as much. But I do think we want to covet some relationship with inspiration. If we are inspired, we want to listen to that voice. And so what what relationship do we want to have with inspiration is the question that I'm sort of carrying with us through this conversation today. I think that's a great question, Vanessa, but I, it makes me want to ask sort of as a follow-up, like, so what is inspiration? I mean, right? Like, I think your your question's a good one that we also need discipline. Like we can't just do things when they come easily. But is that what inspiration is when something comes easily to us? Like what's the difference between that month where you felt inspired, where you felt inspiration, and these months where you don't, if we don't think it was a literal muse visiting you, right? Like what are those differences of circumstances? And because then the answer to your question would have to do with, okay, how do we react to the circumstances around us? And how do we continue to be productive whether or not productivity comes easily or not. The first step in becoming inspired is reminding ourselves as to what happened in the chapter, which you are going to start for us right now and do a beautiful job. We're just doing the work. That's right. We're we're going to keep going. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry's still very angry at Hermione and Ron is too. And uh, they avoid her. Then everyone comes back to class and classes start again. And they go to see Lupin and and Lupin doesn't look well. But Harry says, Lupin, will you teach me to fight off Dementors? And he says, yes. And then and then he uh, he does teach him to fight off Dementors, but it doesn't go so well. He fails a few times, but he starts to see a little wisp of something. And then they go back to the common room and, uh, oh, he gets the broom back and the broom is there and they're happy. And then Ron goes up to, to put the broom away and no, no scabbers. And there's there's blood and tears and and. Crookshanks. You did everything. I don't think I did. I missed a gap in the middle. And also, I don't know if I meant to say tears or tears. It works either way because there are tears in the sheet. But but blood and tears, blood, sweat and blood, sweat and tears. Is that what it is? I don't. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Vanessa. Okay. Are you ready? Count me in. I'd love to. I am. Three, two, one, go. So poor McGonagall is putting up with all of these dumb boys coming up to her and being like, my broom, my broom, Harry's broom, Harry's broom. And she's like, Oliver Wood, do you care more about winning than your life? And he's like, duh, Harry's life. And he's like, duh, obviously. Ron and Harry are not talking to Hermione, who's just like working all the time. Hagrid actually teaches a really good class with salamanders, and that sounds fun. Ravenclaw beats something, something, that's good because Quidditch World Cup, whatever. And um, Harry gets the broom back and Scabbers has been killed, apparently. There's blood on the sheet. 
I think I just said words there in the middle. They weren't sentences. <laughs> so I went slam poetry there in the middle. I, th- I seemed like it, you did well. I My initial response is I said words there in the middle would be, I would hope so. I mean, if you had just not spoken <laughs> between second eight and 22, that would be an unsuccessful 30-second recap. So, Matt, it seems as though the Patronus might be the image to work with to try to answer this question that we were talking about at the top of, is inspiration something that comes from within, or should we not wait for it, but be somewhat disciplined in our approach towards a goal? Because Harry is bringing discipline to the Patronus, right? He didn't wake up one day and say, do you know what I really want to do? I really want to conjure a Patronus. He didn't know, right? And yet there's this outside force that is inspiring him to want to do it of the Dementors. There's this literal spirit that is motivating him. And then he also has to conjure inspiration in order to fight the Dementors. And I don't know what to do with that, but it does seem that the the Patronus is a really interesting way to think about inspiration. I mean, I think one of the things that the Patronus suggests and what your story also indicated is that, like, there's not a bright line between hard work and whatever that thing called inspiration is, right? Like, in that month when you were inspired, you were also choosing to write for three hours instead of watch TV, right? Hard work and inspiration, there's a blurry line there, and sometimes hard work feels easy, And sometimes hard work feels hard, right? And I think the reason the Patronus example, or at least the Patronus training with Lupin example points to this is because, you know, what he has to do is discipline himself to learn how to conjure happiness, right? Like it's, he's supposed to think of happy memories or think of hopeful times as the means towards conjuring the Patronus. But that's not the way we tend to think about happy memories. They just come to us and fill us with happiness, right? You don't have to work at them, right? And so we can see him, like, having to discipline himself, having to, like, when when he sees despair approaching, it's not like happiness just arises of its own right. He has to develop a practice whereby he is able to access some joy or something good inside him in order to confront the despair that's approaching him, right? It raises the question of, like, whether happiness is something that just comes to us or if it's a practice, if it's something we actually have to learn how to bring forward. I'm uncomfortable with the language of happiness as I build out this example because it, that bothers me. Like this idea that, oh, anyone who's not happy just hasn't worked at it hard enough. I would hate I would hate that to be our takeaway from this chapter or from the analogy that we're that I'm trying to make right now. Right. I mean, and we absolutely see that for Harry, right? It's really hard for him to conjure a happy memory because essentially for the first 12 years of his life, he didn't have any. Yeah. Right? Like, He just writes it off so fast. He's like, well, nothing with the Dursleys. And so it's obviously easier for someone to cast a Patronus who's had a life full of joy. It's not a level playing field. No matter how inspired you are to cast a Patronus, it is going to be harder for someone with trauma like Harry than it is going to be for someone who's had nothing but a joyful life. Yeah, to me, that's, I think that's absolutely right. To me, the the most like really heartbreaking part of this chapter is how Harry's not sure he wants to conjure the Patronus because when the Dementors come, he hears his parents' voices, right? Like it for me, what this what this yeah. kind of problematizes is the relationship between the Dementors and happiness or between despair and happiness, right? It seems like what's being suggested in the technique by which this spell is conjured 
that what Lupin's suggesting is that the opposite of despair is happiness. So you have to find some happiness to fend off despair, right? But I think happiness can be shallow, right? And I think you need something more powerful than just like the trivial sorts of happinesses that he imagines, which aren't quite powerful enough to, to face off the Dementor. I think what he longs for is like something deeper than happiness, which is like goodness or the, the memory of his parents and their love for him is caught up in the worst moment of his life, right? And so like parsing those things out, separating one from the other, trying to access the goodness of their protectiveness and their love, but disentangling it from the horror of what happened is such an impossible task. It seems like that is the most powerful weapon he has, but it's caught up in exactly the thing that's that's driving his fear and despair. It makes it a really thorny kind of magical task for him. Yeah, he says, right, like he has to stop prioritizing hearing his parents' voice because what he wants is to win the Quidditch match, right? Yep. And that if he keeps wanting to hear his parents' voice, he's not going to be able to win the Quidditch match. But something that I was thinking about is that, you know, in this chapter, he hears his father, he hears James sacrificing himself yeah. for Lily and Harry. And we know that Harry in a few books is going to be willing to do that himself for the people he loves. And so I wonder if this example does end up inspiring Harry. And he's just like, in this moment, it's not the thing that I need to draw on. I need to draw on something else, like the fact that I got to become a wizard and become part of Hogwarts in order to get through this thing. But that trauma is going to become inspiration for something else later. Yeah, I think that's right. It makes me wonder, Vanessa, like, if what's going on in the room, in the training sessions with Lupin is, and this is not to fault Lupin at all, because I like what Lupin's doing here in general, but just it's a teaching technique, which actually works on most kids, but maybe not on Harry, right? Where you tell most most students at Hogwarts, your happy memory is going to tap into the best and most hopeful part of you. That will often be true, right? But for this particular kid who has had so little happiness, the thing that you need to tap in with him is the lost memories of these parents, which is actually a thing that when he finally does conjure the Patronus successfully at the end of the book, that's the thing. It's, you know, believing he sees his father that gives him the, this goodness or whatever to arise out of him, this feeling of confidence against despair to arrive, arise out of him. So, you know, I think as a Defense Against a Dark Arts teacher for Lupin telling most kids, think of a happy time. That's probably where you're going to access the the magical power to fend off the despair of the Dementors. That's probably right. But in Harry's particular case, his happiness has been so rare and so thin, it's not powerful enough, as you observed. But ironically, the exactly the thing that the Dementors drive up is where he can reach those parts of himself, which do give him the greatest strength and the greatest power against despair. And I think that the book is doing a pretty good job of saying sometimes trauma leads to inspiration and sometimes trauma sucks the soul out from you, right? And all you do is become a heart and a brain, right? Because a Dementor's kiss is also a kind of trauma and Lupin describes it to us in this chapter, right? Like it completely destroys you. Whereas for whatever reason, Harry's trauma around his parents right now in this moment is nothing but trauma. 
But we know that later it will be, right, I, I know a metaphor that a lot of people use is that it turns into compost, right? Like it turns yeah. into something where actually you can turn it into a strength. And I know yeah. a lot of people are amazing about turning their past traumas into great empathy, into vocations, right? Of I survived this circumstance and I want to spend my life trying to make sure other people can as well. I think that those stories are amazing and they're true. So whether or not I theologically want to, you know, um, and put them, you know, at the front of the story. It doesn't matter because they happen. But what I like about this book on that topic is that Harry's able to compost it into something wonderful with this Patronus that saves he and Hermione and Sirius at the end of the book. But also there are other traumas in this book that one does not get over. You are a werewolf and you are always a werewolf. Yeah. You get kissed by a dementor. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, as you were speaking, like I, I started to wonder, like, if this is not like a, a metaphor for therapy or at least sort of like Freudian psychoanalysis, right, to make it too technical, maybe, right? Because there is this sense in which when Harry has these traumas triggered, right, he immediately returns to the moment in a visceral and real sensible way. He hears the voices that he can't remember hearing. And the reason this training works is because... It's in a controlled space with a person who's caring for him. And every time he starts to go there, he's pulled back. It's boxed up and put away. A container is made for it so he can learn to engage it in a way where it can be not erased because it can't be erased, but where it can surface without him descending entirely back into the past. Right. It's still real and it's still there. As we've said before on this podcast and as you just said, like traumas don't go away, we learn how to live with them, right? And this is Lupin teaching him how to live with these voices that return when the dementors come, right? And it works because it's a safe space, because Lupin's there, because when it gets bad, Lupin calls it off and brings him back, because Lupin says, you've had enough, you need to go take care of yourself for tonight, we're going to go slowly. It's Lupin carrying him through this like foundational trauma and teaching him how to reckon with it when it arises and threatens to, to consume him. You know, Vanessa, to circle back to the question about the relationship between hard work and inspiration, like that there's a blurry line. I guess, I don't know if I believe in inspiration. Like, I, maybe, that was, maybe that was clear from the way I asked questions after your story. I think when you cultivate a habit and a practice, some days will be easy and some days will be hard. And... If you stop when the days are hard, you'll never get to the days when it's easy. I think sometimes we get lucky, and when we first start, it comes easily at the beginning. But I think that because we're human and nothing's ever the same and we have complicated lives, like what's easy one day will be hard the next. And what's needed is kind of the dedication to keep at it through the hard stuff so that when it gets easy again, you're there and you're already in the practice and you can take advantage of those moments, right? Like, it sounds to me like what happened in January for you was you took advantage of a moment that, you know, kind of a month-long moment, moment of inspiration, quote-unquote inspiration, and were able to really make the most of that because you were present to it. Whereas I have not been disciplined in this writing agreement that we made. And there have been weeks where I might have come easily for me, but I missed those weeks because I was already not doing it, afraid that it would be hard, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you believe in inspiration? What do you think? 
So my question back to you would be, what is it that makes it easy on the easy days? Because it isn't always, oh, I have time today, right? Yeah. It does sometimes feel to me that it comes from something within. I, you know, I have some wood floors in the house and they are more difficult to mop than the kitchen and bathroom and whatever. And I walk on these, you know, I vacuum and sweep, but I walk on the floors all the time and I'm like, oh, I should mop. Oh, I should mop. And I don't, right? And then this Saturday, it like bubbled up inside me. I was like, I'm going to mop. I'm going to do it. And I like, I don't know another word. I, I was super busy. We had the kids. It was my goddaughter's birthday. We were having people over for a birthday. Like, but I suddenly was just like, no, I'm going to do it. So I guess I do believe in a kind of inspiration. I don't think I'll suddenly be inspired to do something totally out of character. But I was suddenly inspired to mop the floor. This is the thing, though. On a busy day when you when you don't have time to mop, to me it makes sense that that might be the day you end up mopping because you're like, well, I don't have time. I just give it a quick once over. Because, like, I, I don't have time to, like, but no one expects me on a day like today. No one expects me to do, like, the best mopping job ever. I don't have to. But I'm just, I'm just like, a quick one's over, and we'll get it done, and then I'll move on to the rest of my day. Right? To me, that that sort of makes sense in a in a way because you you were able to forgive yourself for not doing it as well as you believe you ought to, which for me is really the writing impasse, which is I can never forgive myself for not writing as great a thing as I hope I could write. And that's what keeps me from writing. And it's only those moments when I can forgive myself for it that I actually write anything. And I am, I'm like, oh, this sucks, but I don't care. <laughs> I'll just keep going. <laughs> Matt, I love that answer. Because mopping is never a big deal, right? Mopping is never high stakes. And for whatever reason, we work ourselves up into this thing where it's like mopping all the wood floors is going to be really hard. And then suddenly on a stressful day, it becomes, to use Casper's language, right-sized. And so then suddenly it becomes easy, right? You're like, it's just mopping. I'm just going to do a decent job and it's fine, right? So that I, I like this idea that we become capable of doing things when external circumstances make it so that it's not as daunting, right? And so, yes, for whatever reason, writing a first draft of a novel was like right-sized for me in the month of January, but it wouldn't have been the thing that I had energy for in January if you and I hadn't had that conversation in October. And I probably wouldn't have been yeah. interested in writing at all if I didn't have the story about my dead grandfather who was a writer, right? Like, the this idea didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. And so it's almost like which inspirations, which cues from the outside of world do we choose to act on? That is the question. Yeah. Right. Like Harry sees a broom his first year of school. And then something happens with Neville being bullied that gets him on the broom and gets him to fly really well. And then, right, and the, this, like, domino effect, McGonagall then sees him. He gets positive reinforcement. Then it turns out that his father was a really good Quidditch player. More reinforcement, right? Like, things happen again and again. And to get him to the point where when this fireball arrives, he's, like, newly inspired by it, right? And so his the stakes of it get completely thrown out of whack for a little bit, where he's, like, Having this firebolt is more important than being alive. I will die 
to fly on this firebolt. Whereas Hermione has, like, the right-sized idea of this firebolt of, like, you can play on other brooms and it's not worth you dying. And so when he gets it back, it suddenly is right-sized again, right? Where he's like, oh, my friendship with Hermione is more important than a broom. And, like, I, I'm going to let everybody fly around it. It's, like, not, right? Like, it's super exciting, but it's not worth dying for. One of the things I hear you saying in a lot of the way we've been talking about inspiration is like a question about where inspiration comes from. Does it is it given to us from outside or it, does it arise from inside of us? This is the question about the firebolt, right? Like what is going to make Harry the Quidditch player that will help them win the cup? Is it his innate talent, his innate Quidditching talent, or is it something that gives given to him from outside, right? I think it's interesting because the etymology doesn't actually help us, or maybe it does help us because it's just as blurry, right? It's The word inspiration just means to inhale, like spirit is the Latin word for breath. It's breathe in. In ancient human anthropology, the understanding of the human was that what gives you your soul is breath. That's why when you die, you stop breathing, right? Breath is actually a thing that is your soul. To breathe in would be to take in, take in who you are, right? Take in your spirit, to have spirit within you. But when you think about breathing in the more modern sense, like we don't just breathe in, like we breathe in and then we do stuff with that breath, right? Like it oxygenates us and it gives us life. And then we exhale and then breathe in again. It's both things. It's both and, right? It's we do receive things from the outside. We receive a firebolt or we receive a conversation with a friend about writing a novel or we have an experience that happens to us and we take that in. And the question is, having taken it in, Will we be able to hold it and then release it back out into the world in a way that's that's productive, right? And so the inspiration, even if we believe it's something that comes to us from outside, it it has to mingle with something inside of us and we have to engage it and take it up and do something with it in order to return it to the world in a useful and a beautiful form. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. I'm just so wary of hard work. Right? Of this idea that hard work is going to be what makes the difference. That, right, like, we see Hermione working hard and it's leading to burnout, right? She is super inspired to learn every single thing in the world. That's a great point. And she's working hard and it is going to crush her. Yeah. And then also, like, we can all work hard, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but, like, we're all starting off on different places. And for some people, it's harder for them to work hard. And so that hard work doesn't look hard from the outside, but they are actually working really hard to get out of bed, right? Or whatever it is. And so I, I completely agree with what you're saying that it's about follow through to some extent. I could have been really inspired by these stories ideas and like laid on the couch and thought about them. And instead I typed them up. But I just, this idea that like hard work pays off. I'm like, it super doesn't. Not equitably, not all the time. Like not even in writing, right? Like I've written whole books that are just crap. And like, I can tell myself the story that that was actually part of the hard work. And that's how I've become a better writer now. But like, sure not what it feels like at the time. You just trash a hundred thousand words in what feels like months of your life. So I just, hard work is just like, a really fraught term for me. You're absolutely right, Vanessa. I, I would like to refine my language, right? Because you're right. Like this idea of hard work gets moralized really easily and is used as like a cudgel to browbeat folks who are struggling and putting forth just as much effort as anyone else, but their work is not recognizable or quantifiable in the way that others' work is. So you're right. I, that's not actually a, a hill I want to die on. To return to the novel, to return to the book, you can see someone like Hermione so valorizing a particular form of hard work that she's unable to do the things that we know she's so great at, which is to receive receive the world and then and then return what she has received to the world in useful and productive and beautiful ways, right? Like this valorization of hard work has become this millstone around the neck of her intellectual talents. I think I just want to say that like receiving the world and then taking it and then transforming it and returning it to the world as something useful or beautiful is sometimes hard, right? And demands practice and attention. And sometimes the work of doing that feels inspired and feels like comes easily and life-giving. So I agree that we should we should let go of that language. What I'm hoping for is just sort of a persistence maybe is what we want in folks. Persistence and patience. Maybe those are those are better words. That, that when the work is not coming in as easily, for whatever reason, and however easily it's coming to other folks, everybody still has the opportunity to take what they've received and transform it into something useful and beautiful for the world. And so what's needed to arrive at that inspiration or in that inspiring moment is patience and persistence, maybe. Maybe those are words that we can use. 
Yeah, I love that, Matt. I just think, right, like hard work has somehow been co-opted by conservative economics. Yep. Like something that I am inspired to do for a lot of reasons, mostly environmental, is bike more rather than drive, right? But biking is hard for me, not because I don't know how to bike, but because I don't know how to bike safely in the Boston area. And the only way for me to learn how to bike as safe as I can in the Boston area is to bike in the Boston area, right? And so I keep avoiding becoming more of a cyclist because I don't have the patience and persistence. I'm always like, well, today is not the day that I'm going to learn how And so to your point, I need to take this inspiration that I have to start cycling more around the city and set aside time to practice. But right, like it never feels like the right time. I'm like, I have a meeting. Now's not the time to like hop on my bike and get lost and confused. Whereas Peter, who's a practiced cyclist and knows how, is always like, just do it now, right? Because it's not hard for him. Even though we both like, Burn the same calories. The hills are the same. But he's put in more practice and more patience over the last 30, 40 years of his life to get good at it. Yeah. You know, returning to this question, Vanessa, about like where does inspiration come from? Does it come from outside or does it come from inside? Another kind of turn of phrase that we use in the English language is that a thing can inspire fear in us, right? Like so inspiration doesn't just involve creativity. It can also involve not so good things like fear, right? And the boggart's a great example of this, except in reverse, right? Because the boggart is inspired to become something fearful by whatever you fear. And in fact, as we discussed in the previous episode about the boggart, like we're not even sure what existence the boggart has outside of the fear of others, right? Because when they defeat the boggart and they're no longer afraid of it, it just kind of poofs out of existence, right? And so the boggart depends upon the inspiration of others, something outside of itself, the fear of the creature that it's antagonizing in order to take some form in the world, in order to be whatever it's going to be and be fearful. I'm not sure what this says about inspiration, but in the sense of fear being inspired in others, it seemed like the boggart is flipping that equation in an interesting way. I mean, I also think we see fear inspiring someone in terms of Hermione again, right? Like she is so afraid of being the mudblood or right, like the muggle-born kid that she is studying herself into exhaustion. And I think that what we see is that when fear is our motivating factor, I mean, to use the thing that we sort of discovered in this conversation, the stakes get out of whack, Hmm. right? I think some fear can be inspiring in a productive way. It is my fear of being poor when I'm retired that gets me to save for retirement, right? Like, and I, it's a real fear and based in statistics, but like, because of that, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to go out to dinner this month because I want to save for retirement, right? And I do think a little bit of that fear is healthy, But when we are only operating out of fear, right, I'm not just operating out of fear. I'm also operating out of a sense of responsibility and, you know, and just like caretaking for myself. It's, It's not just this like profound fear of poverty. But when we are just operating out of fear, I think that it inspires us to do destructive things. It is a force that comes in. It's what gets Hermione to, you know, work this hard and you know, it can be really self-destructive if we let fear inspire us too much. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is is right and important. 
Before we wrap up the theme conversation, Vanessa, you know, we've been talking about like where Harry is supposed to get the inspiration to conjure his Patronus and whether it comes from inside or outside of him. There's this really kind of a tender moment in the chapter when Lupin's describing like what a Patronus is. He says it's like an anti-dementor, a guardian that acts as a shield between you and your dementor. And as soon as he says that, Harry has a vision of himself crouching behind a Hagrid-sized figure who is holding a large club. And it just made me think of two things. First, like how devoted to Hagrid Harry is and how much Hagrid's rescue of him from the Dursleys continues to mean to him. And just second, that he's still a 13-year-old kid. Like, what he wants more than anything is not to conjure his own heroic Patronus. He wants a big, strong person, creature, to stand between him and harm. And it just makes me sad for him because he deserves all these adults around him. Uh, He deserves that they do that for him. And that he shouldn't have to wish for it in a vision, but it should just be, it should be just made real in his life. I also love that Hagrid is that image, right? For all of Hagrid's faults, like, he does the most important things well. Yeah. Like, it's not Dumbledore, right? He doesn't imagine Dumbledore in front of him, like, fighting off. He imagines Hagrid. He knows that there's there's a kind of protectiveness there that makes him feel safe, despite whatever faults or flaws Hagrid might have. So Matt, it is now time for us to do our sacred practice, and we are doing Chavruta this week. And my question for you is, if it's a boggart and not an actual Dementor, how can the boggart actually make Harry pass out and hear his parents' voice and feel this fear? Because the implication is, right, that like, then that spider really could have eaten Ron. and that mummy really could have been in the classroom. In which case, this is like an insurance liability nightmare, what Lupin is letting go on in this classroom. And I just like can't imagine that that is what a bogger is. And so my obvious answer is that this is psychological for Harry and that he could actually work himself up into this state just by being afraid of having these thoughts. That the, that the bogger as Dementor is just a confrontation, a like mirror of Erised, but of all of your fears rather than of all of your hopes. And that is why it works so effectively. And it's not that it actually has the power of a Dementor, nor would that spider have actually been able to eat these children. Your thoughts, please. I think you're right, Vanessa. I think I can't imagine that like the bogger actually wants to give Harry the kiss of death. Or that the bogger actually would have wanted to eat Ron as in spider form. Like, it's purely for the purpose of creating fear, not of accomplishing. You know, the Dementor uses fear in order to get the kiss. And the spider uses fear in, or the fear is a side effect of the spider just chasing and trying to get get its prey, right? The bogger, it seems like, is not actually trying to hurt these children. It's just sign of a pest. And it takes this this form of of fearfulness in order to be a pest. Yeah, so I think you're right. I mean, the, the harm must come, the harm which is cured by chocolate, right? Because 
because Lupin uses the chocolate to heal Harry after this encounter with the Boggart, which is not an actual Dementor. The harm must come from the fear, not from the Dementor itself. It's the Dementor that stirs up this fear in Harry. And the fear is the thing that that causes this reaction in, in Harry. Yeah. And so I'm trying to think what that is in my own life, right? Or what it is in the real world, right? Like, I am not afraid of flying. <laughs> I am afraid of being in cars. But a lot of people are afraid of flying. And those moments of turbulence are that, right? Where I think most of us know on some level, most likely we're not going to die. But what becomes scary are you start listing all the things in your life that you haven't done, right? And so it becomes this cycle of it's not about the crash right? It's about the things you've left behind. Is that the metaphor? I just don't understand. Is this just FDR? The only thing to fear is fear itself? That was just what I was going to say, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that we, there are other things to fear, but fear itself, right? I think, <laughs> yeah. I think what's being suggested here in this scene, or in particular by the Boggarts not being a Dementor, but having the same effect upon Harry is that Fear is an additional force and complication when added to threat and real evil beyond beyond just fear, right? Because the Dementor is going to kiss you whether or not you're afraid. But mm -hmm. if you are afraid, you might also have this other reaction that Harry has, which is you become helpless and full of despondency and despair, which makes it a lot easier for the, the Dementor to come give you a kiss, right? And so the fear compounds the what is already terrible about the actual threat, right? The Boggart's an interesting case because the Boggart is not an actual threat. It doesn't seem like all it uses is the fear. But the fear has actual physiological effects, as we said during the theme conversation. Terry needs to be healed by chocolate. Right, right. I Yeah, and so chocolate isn't what heals a Dementor attack. It's what heals fear. Yeah, right. I mean, which we see in the Ginny situation right. at the end of book two. Of course, she also yeah, gets chocolate. it helps heal her there. Yeah. Yeah. So, Vanessa, here's my follow-up question. If the Boggart is not an actual Dementor and it's only the fearful effects which Harry is feeling, then will a successful Patronus spell actually repel the Dementor? Or is this only for the purposes of learning how to cast a successful Patronus spell. That, like, once Lupin sees Harry cast a successful Patronus spell, then Lupin will be like, oh, great, good job, ridiculous, and then put the put the boggart away, right? Or is a successful Patronus casting going to actually frighten the boggart away because it's taking up the form of the Dementor in some substantial or essential way? And you know what? I think, I think that it's purely for practice. I think at the end of the scene... We have a, you know, we have more of a Patronus come out. Lupin's very impressed. And Harry doesn't pass out, but we also hear that Lupin packs the Boggart away into the cupboard or or into some small space. I can't remember exactly, right? But Lupin is the one who actually puts the Boggart away after Harry does a better job on his third try, right? And so it seems to me to suggest that Lupin's still managing the situation and still the one containing the the Boggart and that the the purpose of the Boggart is only to create a Dementor realistic enough to make the production of the Patronus stand up to a real world test, if that makes sense, right? To like, to make the stakes real enough for Harry that the Patronus casting will be reliable in the moment of crisis. What do you think about that? I find that 
that so compelling that now I want to go back and be like, Lupin is a bad teacher. <laughs> Teach him how to cast a Patronus first without a bogger first. Yep. I am so compelled by that that I take back three points from our theme conversation. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this is so fun because this is how Kofruta can go on forever, right? Because then I'm like, but now my question is, so is Lupin actually a bad teacher? Because, like, why isn't he here having Harry practice a Patronus without a bogger? And my answer is, right, that Lupin is like, well, Patronuses are for Dementor fighting, so we need a Dementor in here. Whereas if rather than being out in the world, he really thought about pedagogy, right? He'd be able to separate, okay, what we're trying to do is teach Harry how to cast a Patronus. We want to start with the ma- most basic form of that. I mean, it seems hasty. Like, he gives him, like, like one or two chances to, like, cast one before he lets the boggart out, right? Right. It seems like maybe the first session, we just spend the whole time trying to get more than a wisp. Maybe. Because we know there's another session coming. Well, the other thing is, Harry's desire to cast a Patronus should actually raise the alarm bells that the Dementors need to freaking leave the school. Yeah. Right? This kid who we're trying to protect is actually being tortured. And instead, they're coming up with this, what I know like people in the business world call a technical solution to an adaptive problem. This is a small fix to a really big problem. Yes, I agree. I mean, I'm reminded of that image of Hagrid. A huge haggard-like creature with a club in front of Harry. That's 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 what's needed. Let's just protect this kid, <laughs> right? Yeah, Matt. Thank you so much for this really fun and fruitful for me at least. Chavruta, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voice memo is from Yuval. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Yuval Yadlin, and I'm calling from Washington, D.C. In a recent meeting of my local group, shout out to the D.C. Ministry of Magic, uh, we were discussing Chapter 1 of Chamber of Secrets, The Worst Birthday, and something new occurred to me. We know by this point in the summer, Dobby has already decided that Harry must be protected and tries to prevent him from returning to Hogwarts even before they've ever met. And so I wonder what Dobby was thinking when he arrived on Privet Drive and saw Harry doing the same kind of hard physical labor that Dobby does on a daily basis. And I wonder if he saw Harry narrowly avoid getting hit by a frying pan, similar to how the Malfoys might choose to punish Dobby. Does he see in Harry a kind of kindred spirit? Harry comments, wish they could see the famous Harry Potter now, as if seeing him garden might change the way the wizarding world thought about the boy who lived. But I think Dobby did see him, and it only further solidified that Harry was a wizard worth protecting and someone who would one day make the magical world better for all creatures. And so a blessing for Dobby for wanting to protect Harry even before knowing him, a blessing for Harry for being the kind of child and kind of wizard who could connect to someone on the margins, and a blessing for this podcast for spawning local groups like the DC Ministry of Magic who helped me see things I would never have considered on my own. Thank you. Yuval, before I respond to the beautiful content of your voicemail, I would like to say that I'm so glad that y'all renamed yourselves. For a long time, you were the DC local group, and we teased you a lot for it. And I'm just very proud of you that you're now the Ministry of Magic. It's a great name for a DC local group. I also just want to thank you for this really beautiful blessing. I think there are so many parallels between Dobby and Harry. They are people who are willing to sacrifice themselves and die for the people who love them. They are people who are willing to break rules in order to make things happen. And they both come from these really horrible circumstances. And there's some things that we want to cherish that they have in common and other things that we wish neither of them had to deal with. But, you know, I I really appreciate this beautiful comparison between the two. Thank you so much. And say hello to the Ministry of Magic for us. Yeah, thank you, Yuval. And I agree. I think that one thing your voicemail reminded me was how few of the administrators and teachers at Hogwarts actually know how grim things are at the Dursleys, right? Even the folks who do know don't really know, it seems like, how how bad that situation is. Dobby does, I think, because of Dobby's own abuse and trauma, maybe doesn't see it for what it is. But I think something about what they share with respect to the, their cruel caretakers does build connection between them in a meaningful way. So thank you, you've all. It is now time for us to remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Joe, 55, a father who was family-focused, fun, and fast. Raghavendran Rajarao, 79, a survivor and generous grandfather. Kim Dovorchek Anderson, 40, 
a kind and funny friend and mother. Stacy Rains, 63, a mother, friend, and dog lover. Tate Meyer, 16, a victim of the Oxford school shooting in Michigan, who was a star football player, excelled academically, and was an honor student. He was also brave, and he put his life in danger to try and help the thousands of other students at Oxford High School. Madison Baldwin, 17, another Oxford shooting victim, who was an artist who loved to draw, read, and write. She was the eldest of three siblings, had a younger half-brother, and two sisters she loved dearly. Hannah St. Juliana, 14, another Oxford shooting victim. The Oxford girls' basketball team said that Hannah had a kind heart, a silly personality, and a passion for the game. Justin Schilling, another Oxford victim, a scholar who was part of Oxford School District's baccalaureate program, a lettered athlete, and a university scholarship awardee who was beloved by so many in his community, his family, and his school. Anne Irig, 79, a mother, grandmother, friend, and safe haven. Leslie Mumford, 60, a reader, list maker, and best friend. Luke Spangenberg, 56, a loving father and outdoor lover. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Vanessa, who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Ron. He is mad at Hermione (laughs) throughout most of this chapter, but he is still worried about her even when he's mad at her. He's like, how is she doing all of this work? Right? And it comes out as anger and frustration at not knowing, but I genuinely believe he is concerned and that he's bothered that there's something about this this friend who he loves. And at this point, I, I don't necessarily think romantically, but regardless, who he genuinely loves and is engaging in a behavior that he profoundly doesn't understand that disturbs him. And Harry, you know, in Harry's psyche, he's, Harry's like, I don't have time to worry about this. And Ron, even with his anger, is still worried about Hermione. And so mm. I want to bless Ron for that. That seems like a really good instinct. It's one that I wish he followed more. But I do think it's the right instinct. What about you, Matt? Who would you like to bless? You know, I had someone set up to bless, but just in the course of our conversation, we've returned to this image of Hagrid and Harry crouching behind Hagrid a couple of times. And so even though Hagrid doesn't really show up in a substantial way in this chapter, I just want to bless Hagrid because in this moment, like it's just just this reminder from the text of how important a figure is to Harry, how protective a figure he is to Harry, how loving a figure he is to Harry. You know, if we're to believe this image, maybe more so than anyone else at the school, blessings for Hagrid. Amen. Matt, next week we are going to be reading chapter 13, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw through the theme of independence. Ooh, I'll think of a story all on my own. 
This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Yuval for their blessing and voicemail, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of those who have been loved and lost this week. patreon we are so glad that you're here well i've signed up and i can't wait to hear it vanessa (laughs) you're one of our highest level patrons i know that's right